So we, we've got a, a lot to obviously unpack there. Monica, I don't envy your job. I know you left some some flex and some room at the top to, to respond. And I think you're going to be making good use of that time. To remind people who have just joined us, uh, we're now going to a, a response panel. We're sort of across the sector here. Uh, we're, we're very fortunate to be joined by Teresa Redburn, who's the Senior Vice President of Commercial and Corporate Development at Imperial Oil. Scott Dodd, who's the Director of Business Development uh, for Enbridge Gas Distribution. Kim Rudd, who's a consultant with the Canadian Nuclear Association, uh, former Ontario MPP and former Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Natural Resources. Kim, you've been our, on our platform a few times over the past few months. Thank you for, for doing that. Uh, Robert Horning, who's the President and CEO of the Canadian Renewable Energy Association. Robert, it's good to have you on. And as I mentioned, uh, Dr. Monica Gettinger, she is the Director of the Institute for Science, Society and Policy at the University of Ottawa. Monica, you are going to take it from here. I will be staying on to uh, stick handle some questions. Many of the ones I think that we, we didn't get to with Minister Regan are applicable to this panel here. Uh, so, Monica, it, uh, over to you. Great. Uh, thanks so much, Alex. Uh, when you first introduced the session, you said uh, that this was going to be a cool panel. I have a feeling it's going to be a hot uh, panel. Uh, this is a dream <laughs> panel to moderate. Talk about a terrific uh, group of, of respondents. Um, you know, in terms of uh, uh, our approach for today, we've got a number of topic areas that we want to address, all of which relate to uh, the discussion that, that we just heard. Uh, but maybe we can really start a little bit with some brief reactions from, uh, from the panel to the session with, with Minister O'Regan. You know, I think one of the things that uh, Anne McClellan said that uh, really rings so true is that in spite of the second wave, uh, there's been so much uh, going on. And that was, you know, made very clear by... Um, the discussion that uh, she had with with the minister, I was really struck by um, you know his customer focus, uh, very globally focused, collaboration focused, focused on energy and climate imperatives, uh, very much an all of the above approach. You know, all hands on deck to achieve energy and environmental uh, objectives, not only you know across industries but also across uh, jurisdictions. So you know, bravo, uh, Alex, to Canada 2020 for putting on uh, this session. It's so important. Uh, to position uh, Canada uh, and Canadian energy in, in global context. So maybe just briefly, we'll do kind of a brief roundtable, ask everybody to give a few uh, reactions uh, short uh, to the minister's uh, discussion with Anne McClellan, and then we'll, move into, uh, then we'll move into the discussion. So I'd like to start, I'll just sort of go around my screen. I'll start with you, Teresa. Any, sure. uh, any thoughts and response? Well, thanks, Monica, and certainly um, a number of the elements that the minister mentioned are so important to Canada. I mean, he's clearly a supporter of energy in Canada in all forms of energy, and I think that's so important. As we look at where the world is heading, energy demands are going to continue to grow, and Canada has a place in that, and that's what's very exciting. Whether it's renewable, whether it's nuclear, whether it's oil and gas, we can play a role, and uh, I think all those sectors are working very hard to have improved tremendously and are working very hard to continue to improve. So, um, and the key, the key thing that he said was collaboration. And it is all about collaboration. It's not about finger pointing. It's not about name calling. It's about putting great minds together to find what those solutions will be in the future. 
No, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things I've observed over the last uh, little while is uh, there seems to be a bit more of a focus on collaboration. Perhaps things are getting a little bit less uh, divisive and polarized than we've seen in the past. That's a topic we're going to come to in a minute in our our discussion. But let's continue this uh, quick roundtable. What about uh, for you, Robert? Uh, Reactions? Oh, I think obviously a very uh, heartening discussion, I guess I would say. I'd echo the themes around collaboration in terms of that being important. Also, just the honest admission and recognition of the scale of the challenge that we're doing and the fact that collaboration is going to be required, the all, all of the above approach in terms of moving forward. Um, and also, I guess, recognizing the important role that the private sector is going to play and the important role that government can send in terms of sending signals out to the private sector to help inform their choices going forward to move us towards the role, which I think will ultimately be critical to our success. Yeah, no, there's no question that there was a big uh, market focus in many of his uh, many of his remarks, but also with that policy, a uh, strong policy framework behind it, which uh, again, uh, for those in the audience, as you can imagine, we're gonna dive down into that in, a, in our discussion as well. Uh, Kim, what about for you, reactions? Well, um, as you know, I was member of parliament and uh, former parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Natural Resources, and I managed the nuclear file for a few years. And what really came out of that work um, is something that Seamus is talking about. You remember Generation Energy, Monica? You were there um, in Winnipeg, and I'm sure some of the, the others were as well. And it talked about the all of the above scenario. It talked about the strategy, you know, Minister Regan talked about being the fourth largest producer of oil and gas. Mm -hmm. We know we need oil and gas to get to 2050, but we also need, we know we need to find ways to decarbonize it. So what does that look like? Um, So there, the all of the above strategy, going to the collaboration piece, it isn't a competition. I'm looking at this screen and I am seeing people from the nuclear sector, the renewable energy sector, the oil and gas sector, all talking about the same thing. And that's not always been the case. And certainly from the nuclear perspective, we are talking to our stakeholders and our partners uh, like the renewable sector and, and others to talk about how we can work together because this is, this challenge is huge and we can't do it alone. The only way we get there is if we figure out how to get there um, together and collaboratively and create what we can call this eco energy or uh, ecosystem of energy um, in this country. And I think that bodes well, both for our economy, as well as for our commitment to net zero 2050. Mm-hmm. No, a- absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that uh, I'm beginning to see as well is that, you know, the, the, the more that we're getting into the how of making all of this work, the more that we're beginning to see that that collaboration, you know, up and down value chains across subsectors of the industry, across jurisdictions, uh, in Canada and internationally is, is is really key. Scott, what about you? Reactions? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's a great start. I think, you know, I think the all of the above is, is the right answer. We need to work together. I mean, and we are so integrated. I mean, we, we stand in sort of the middle where we transport the energy people need across North America and want. And so, you know, we want to provide our customers with solutions that can help them achieve the goals they want to achieve while we meet the government policy objectives. So I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here. I'm, uh, I'm very positive about the future and how we get there. Terrific. 
So now less people in the audience think this is just going to be a bunch of, you know, people holding hands and uh, singing the praises <laughs> of what they've just heard. Uh, rest assured, <laughs> we will get into some details and some challenges here. I think that's absolutely uh, essential. Um, so one of the things that we wanted to dive uh, into a little bit more is really looking at, uh, you know, those global energy markets, uh, some of the shifts and transformations that were alluded to in the discussion uh, between the minister and and, uh, and McClellan and, and Canada's place uh, within them. Um, so, you know, Teresa, what, what do you see as some of the key shifts uh, in global energy markets and, and how do you see Canadian energy uh, industry and its place in the world? Yeah, um, well, certainly, Monica, um, energy demand is continuing to grow around the world. Um, population right now, I think, is about 7.5 billion. We go to about 9 billion uh, in uh, the not too distant future. And uh, that involves um, lifting uh you know, the economies grow in, in, and we lift people out of poverty and that's all great stuff. And all of that takes energy. So energy is is critical in the world. And, um, you know, if, if you look at the IEA, the International Energy Agency and their forecast, they, they show a shift, certainly. So um, there's a growth, tremendous growth in renewables. Um, there's a growth in biofuels, uh, you know, a bit of a decline in coal, um, not unexpectedly. And interestingly enough, uh, oil and gas remains at or close to 50% of the energy mix in, in a variety of different scenarios, including including the, the sustainable development scenario or two degree scenario. So um, lots of demand and and the demand is a good thing because it, 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 it creates positive outcomes for people around the world. So what's Canada's role? Well, Canada is has abundant, as, as you heard the minister say, we have abundant natural resources, we have abundant technologies, and, um, and, and we can really play a critical role in the future. In fact, you know, you look at Canada today, um, we're about 81% of our electricity is non-GHG emitting. Um, we, we have carbon, carbon policies now across our sectors. Uh, which many in the world don't. And um, in fact, you know, if I look at my sector, um, when you look at the global producers around the world, Canada is the only one that has a comprehensive countrywide uh, carbon policy. So um, we're very, you know, we're very well poised to compete. And then if you look at the ESG world, environmental social governance, we are in, in my sector, we're number one on the Yale Environmental Index as a country. We're number one on the social imperative index, and we're number one on the governance index when you compare to the top 10 reserve holders around the world. So Canada has a lot to be proud of. We have a lot to be proud of today. And, you know, as we look to the future, we have a lot to be proud of there. So we, we really can compete if we all pull together and create smart solutions. Yeah, no, I think those are some really important points, you know, taking into consideration that global context, but then also some of the performance and other gains in, in Canada, particularly in your sector, Teresa, where sometimes, you know, understandings of the issues, even within Canada, are a good decade or more behind in terms of where things are at on ESG and other, uh, and other metrics. Um, Robert, what about for you? You know, sort of same question. What are some of the key global transformations that you see in Canadian energy in that context? But you know, as head of the uh, Renewable Energy Association, how, how does uh, how does your sector see things? Well, I mean, I think one of the key changes we obviously see in the impact energy markets is the growing incorporation of climate considerations. 
uh, whether that's in government policymaking, whether that's in consumer choice, uh, whether that's in the decisions of energy investors. And I think it's increasingly clear that the signal is being sent that, uh, that you know, what we're going to need more of in the future is low and no carbon sort of products and services going forward. And so that's going to influence investment throughout the entire sector going forward. And I think, you know, renewables now are particularly well positioned because of the dramatic declines we've seen. I mean, this is the other trend, I would say, the dramatic declines we've seen in cost in renewables uh, over the last decade. And now that we can look to a world where we can really envision decarbonizing electricity grids in a cost-effective manner because these technologies have come down so significantly in cost. It means we can also really consider increasingly using electricity to provide, to meet end uses of energy in other sectors, as we see with the movement towards electric vehicles and transportation or a new aluminum smelter in Quebec in terms of it's running on electricity only. So there are, there are some significant shifts that are happening. The other shift that we're seeing is obviously a, I would say a blossoming, in a sense, of a tremendous diversity of solutions providers, mm. um, which go beyond specific technologies, but include smart grid technologies, artificial intelligence. Um, and what we're seeing, I think, is what's going, that's going to push us to is really a need to look at how we can use markets to ensure that we're making effective choices against what are an increasingly broad range of potential solutions to go forward. Um, because they're, uh, we'll never, we'll never be able to make those choices in a sort of planned way. Um, the markets will need to decide. And I think that we're seeing an increasing trend towards that in energy policy as well, in terms of let increase consumer choice, let markets allow all options to participate. Mm. Well, no, I'll see, Monica, if I could just say one more thing, I would just sure. say in that regard, and I apologize for that, but in that regard, I would also just say that in terms of the Canada portion of it, Canada is incredibly well positioned to be a global leader in this regard. We talked about mm -hmm. how clean our electricity already is. We're one of the few countries that can clearly move to 100% uh, non-emitting electricity. And we have the opportunity to be a leader in providing goods and services in that regard globally. Mm -hmm. Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Robert. I mean, one one might even think, you know, there's a, like an embarrassment of of choice. Um, and, and Kim, this is sort of where I want to come to you on this. So you mentioned a moment ago, all of the above. So like, what does that actually look like in practice when all of the above for Canada is actually a, a, a you know, it's all with all capital letters? <laughs> well, you know, I, actually, I just came off a, a panel that involved the UK and the US and talking about integrated energy systems that we have to recognize, especially for Canada. We are such a vast uh, geographic footprint. Uh, most of our population is along the south. And, and there is a, as, as the minister mentioned, you know, we have northern rural remote communities that are burning millions and millions and millions of gallons of diesel. And it's not just about the air quality and the reliability, et cetera. It's about getting more and more difficult because of climate change to get that fuel to them. So, so what's the answer? Um, you know, Northwest Territories is looking at small modular reactors. They're also looking at renewables. They're looking at a number of things. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. The, um, I guess the other thing I would say about the all of the above strategy is a recognition that almost one size doesn't fit all. In certain uh, areas of our country, 
it may make perfect sense to use a combination of X and Y, but that combination is not relatable to another province, as an example. And there are a number of factors that come into this, including, you know, interties that we don't talk nearly enough about, uh, the uh, transfer, the export of our energy to the U.S. and other countries. We're a huge exporter of energy, um, whether it's oil and gas or whether it's electricity. So I think we have to to recognize that we have an opportunity here as Canada to continue to be a leader in this space, but we also have an opportunity because of a government change in the U.S. And that there is an opening uh, with uh, President-elect Biden in terms of his uh, commitment to recommit to Paris and move forward on some of the initiatives that are very much in sync with Canada. And I think that's an opportunity for us, again, um, from a climate change perspective, but also from an economic one. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely agreed. I think there's a tremendous opportunity, lots of alignment between the two uh the two, uh, well, the incoming administration and the current the current government here, uh, particularly at the federal level, uh, and then you know opportunities to reinvigorate what uh, have have a little bit languished over the last few years. I'll say it diplomatically, Canada U.S. Uh, energy and environmental uh, relations. So so lots of opportunities there. Um, so so Scott, I'd, I'd like to ask you, you know, at the individual company level, then. You know, how is all this manifesting? You know, Enbridge uh, has recently put in commitments to uh, net zero uh, by 2050. Uh, what what motivated uh, that decision, those commitments? You know, what, what are some of the plans to uh, move forward on that? Yeah, I think, thank you, first of all. Um, yeah, I think, you know, our, our goal was, you know, obviously ESG and uh, delivering the energy that our customers want and, and they're expecting us to move in these directions to meet societal changes. So. And, and I agree, it, it's really, you know, it's not one size fits all in this, this, this pathway. You know, we, we have RNG in our uh, distribution operations, renewable natural gas. We're looking at hydrogen. We have a small electrolyzer in Markham. You know, we're looking at blending that hydrogen in our natural gas. We're looking at blue hydrogen in, in Alberta and in Saskatchewan and in other areas. So it's really about, you know, finding opportunities that meet our customers' needs and delivering them the service that they want or delivering the energy that they want in the form that they want. So it's an opportunity. I mean, uh, it takes a lot of work, uh, you know, uh, you know, changing uh, energy systems and, and, and the whole system is incredibly complex. There's a lot of, you know, you have to have a lot of stakeholdering, a lot of unintended consequences if you do things too quickly. But I think, you know, one of the advantages that we see with hydrogen is that intertie between the electrical system and, and the natural gas and other systems by as a storage medium. And that intertie will allow those two systems to work together even more seamlessly in the future. So I think there's great opportunity in that. And then we look forward to uh, working with companies to develop those opportunities. Yeah, I'd love to hear, and, and I'm going to come back to that if we could, Scott, hear a little bit more about, you know, sort of how that would work for folks in, in the audience who may be a little bit less uh, familiar. Um, you know, so so we've got now uh, net zero by 2050 on, on the table, which brings us to government uh, commitments. It's net zero legislation recently. It's been a very busy fall as, uh, boy, we just heard, uh, Kim, another potential, uh, you were probably aware of this uh, strategy coming out around uh, around SMR. So clearly NRCAN and, and Environment and climate change have been extremely uh, busy in collaboration with ISED and, and others. 
in terms of you know net zero legislation, the climate plan announced last week, a hydrogen strategy uh, uh, finally released uh, today. So lots of uh, lots of action. And, and I guess you know one of the things that that we've been seeing in our work uh, at the university around energy and and uh, climate issues is that many leaders, you know, folks around this table and, and others have often made the um, observation, uh, pained observation that, that Canada needs some sort of a national vision or a national approach or national policy on energy and, and climate uh, issues. And then the absence of a vision, a common vision that, you know, we're going to be running into lots of, uh, of challenges uh, within the country on uh, energy and climate decision making. Um, so I guess I'd, I'd like to ask you, uh, Teresa, well, you know, what's your sense? Does the, do all of the various decisions that we've heard over the last uh, number of uh, weeks and, and months from the federal government, does that amount to a national energy vision or a national climate vision and a plan? Uh, what's missing? How, how far have we gone and how far have we still got to go? Well, um, certainly they're, they're, the devil's always in the details, Monica, so we'll look forward to, to digging into those. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> I said earlier, I think the vision for Canada should be that we can be the responsible energy provider to the world in all forms of energy. And we're an export nation. So, you know, the products and services that we develop, if we export and, and they're responsibly produced, can benefit the world. Um, and, and certainly we can also ex export our expertise, you know, in terms of the technologies. So, so a real growth, and, and because energy demand is continuing to grow, it's a real growth opportunity for Canada. So, you know, there's a, a few things that have to happen. I mean, industry has to figure out the, um, the smart way to, to work on these pathways to net zero. There's many pathways. There isn't one. And um, what, it, what it involves is how can we, you know, with technology, reduce our environmental footprint at a, at a in a cost-effective way while providing, you know, sustainable development in, in the communities in which we operate. So that's a kind of a triple win. And I think they all have to come together. It's not a simple checklist. It's, it's smart integration of, of all these strategies and all these energies. And then, you know, in terms of the, we also need the business environment to make that happen. So some of that was contained in some of the announcements this week. But if you think about some of the key elements that are very important, it's opening the aperture on technologies. So we heard one size does not fit all. So let's let's open the market, free market for innovation and drive. And that drives the lowest cost solutions for consumers at the end of the day. And then removing regulatory barriers. If we want to be a leader, we have to not only have the technology, but get them built. So getting them built means, you know, we've got clear regulatory pathways to make that happen. And we've got commercial pathways to make that happen. And then lastly is competitiveness. And, you know, there's been talk about um, uh, certainly better alignment with the U.S. And, and I think that would that would help. Um, but we need to we need to be careful. We don't have carbon leakage, that we don't have money moving to the U.S. or other jurisdictions that might have lower taxes or more favorable regimes. You know, um, that's already happened a bit in Canada. But you know, you look recently, even at California, and, you know, there's many tech companies that are moving their head offices from California to other jurisdictions in the US. So we, we need to, we need to make sure that we've got an environment that's competitive, 
to allow the technologies to be applied and to grow and to build um, this this vision. Yeah, no, and, and you know, you lay it out like that, Teresa. You say, well, it, it in in theory, very easy, right? Let's make sure that we've, we're integrating, you know, the, the 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 climate and environmental considerations with economic uh, and energy uh, considerations and competitiveness uh, considerations. Uh, in practice, uh, you know, in a federation like Canada's with the divided jurisdiction, it takes a whole lot of thinking mm-hmm. through. Okay, how are we actually going to make uh, how are we actually going to make this happen? So. Again, kudos to 2020 for putting a panel, uh, organizing a panel like this to to start getting uh, to some of those issues. Um, Robert, you know, you and I have sat on stages before where you've made this exact point around the lack of kind of a national vision or or approach on energy and and environmental and climate issues. What's your sense? Are are we closer? Have we got it? What's still still to be done? Same question in essence for you. I think there's no doubt that we're closer. And I think that's heartening and, and very, very positive. Um, I'm still not convinced that we're all on the same page with respect to the final objective in terms of net zero and everyone understanding what that truly means in the end and what the implications of that are. So I think that's something that we'll still need to test a little further. But I do think that this plan actually is the clearest vision of a framework, I think, that we've had and, and provides the clearest sense of a path forward that gives us an opportunity towards moving towards our climate goals. Um, I think the emphasis, and it was mentioned earlier, the emphasis on the importance of the market and uh, the priority and the primacy given to carbon pricing in terms of helping to inform investment decisions, I think is absolutely critical. And I think that sends a very strong and important signal. Um, again, it's, it's broad in scope and covers a lot of different areas and sort of consistent with this all of the above approach. But obviously, it's true. It's, it's a framework. Uh, more work needs to be done in all of these areas. Teresa talked about the devil in the details. Certainly true. Um, and and the other thing is that we ultimately need, when we talk about this being a national plan, we need to see active engagement and participation from other levels of government, the provincial government, the municipal governments, and recognize that there's a lot of the work of how the rubber hits the road how you remove some of the barriers that exist. Even if a price signal is there, if you can't do something because there's a regulation in place, you need to change. Uh, we have regulatory systems that actually discourage innovation when innovation is what we desperately need right now. So I think this plan has provided a good framework to build upon going forward, but there's a lot of work that remains to be done. Mm-hmm. No, for, for sure. And so let's sort of start drilling down a little bit more um, into that. One of the things that uh, certainly has come out in the minister's remarks, uh, uh, has come out in this conversation so far, is the, the really, um, you know, pivotal role of technology and and, and of innovation. Uh, and certainly there's a lot of, um, um, you know, focus on innovation and, and technology in the number of announcements we've had over the last uh, the last number of weeks and, and months. Uh, so, so, Scott, I want to come to you on this and maybe get a little bit, hear a little bit from more from you on, on hydrogen, uh, but I'm sure you've got other uh, technologies you want to talk about. What, what do you see as some of the opportunities, but also challenges uh, when it comes to, uh, um, you know, recent uh, policy announcements at the federal level uh, for, uh, for the energy sector? Yeah, thanks. I, I think, you know, certainly hydrogen is, is a prime example of something that needs some help in the development of the industry overall. You need to develop demand and supply in, in 
you know, in sequence so that you're not out of balance and that you can operate in an effective market. Uh, we know that hydrogen compared to other sources is, is expensive, particularly when you get to green hydrogen, but there are opportunities there. So we look to, you know, invest in technologies that can help reduce those costs. And, you know, just as we've done in other areas, you know, we work to find ways and it's not a, uh, it's not a moonshot type activity. It's a series of gradual improvements. And just as, you know, wind farms went from, you know, being quite expensive. Now they're quite cheap in terms of their technology and cost to uh, achieve. So it's, it's, a, it's a gradual constant, you know, the, the one thing about, uh, you know, being the market is it, it rewards that innovation and sequential innovation so that you can move things forward. Uh, the challenge we have is that our infrastructure systems are, you know, require, you know, large investments and they have long lives. So we want to make sure that we're optimizing them and, and reuse, reduce and recycle wherever possible. So if you've got something that's already built that you can repurpose, let's find ways to do it. You know, certainly that's what we looked at when we uh, looked at blending uh, hydrogen into our natural gas system. It's a way to decarbonize that in another way. So I think, you know, so, but it's a, it's a, it's a uh, evolutionary process, I guess would be my view. And, and as we go forward, we constantly have to make these improvements and move things forward uh, in order to get to the end state. And, and just a quick follow-up, if I could, on that, uh, Scott. So, you know, Robert mentioned a minute ago about uh, this isn't just about what the federal government does. It's also about what provincial governments do. And as we know on hydrogen, you know, the federal government is not the only jurisdiction with a, a strategy. BC's got one. Alberta's got one. Uh, uh, Quebec, you know, others. Uh, for a company like yours that works across uh, the country, how do you navigate all, all of that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the great thing about Canada is we're a diverse group of, of people across a vast land. So there are opportunities and there, you know, you look for general sort of uh, uh, ways to work together and across those things. Each individual area has its own differences. You know, certainly I think it's been brought up that blue hydrogen makes a lot of sense in Alberta. Uh, you know, green hydrogen makes sense in Quebec. So you, you find ways to integrate those into your systems, you know. Ultimately, you want to serve a market and, and they have a, a ready supply in these cases of, of, of product that uh, you can hopefully use and satisfy a market need. So I think that's the opportunity. I think, you know, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, Canada is an export nation and people recognize that. And we got to find ways to export because our standard of living ultimately depends on us being successful business traders. Uh, and that's been so successful for us in the past and it can continue in the future. Great, uh, thanks. Well, one of the other technologies uh, that, that uh, in addition to hydrogen, that uh, got quite a bit of discussion in the uh, session with the minister was nuclear. So Kim, love to hear you uh, on, on this topic. Uh, where, does, where does nuclear fit in uh, in the Canadian context? Well, I certainly think uh, we're going to hear a little bit more about that, maybe a lot more about that uh, very shortly. Um, it's a pretty exciting time. When I was the Parliamentary Secretary, we developed the SMR uh, roadmap, which uh, was the precursor to this. And uh, it was developed with industry and government. And it really 
um, laid out that pathway we're talking about here to development. And the action plan, of course, is the next step of that. You know, I want to just go back to the jurisdictional question and sort of how nuclear uh, plays a role. So you may know, I think it was back in June, if I remember correctly, um, four provinces, utilities and provinces, signed on to a memorandum of understanding, which which instructed, is, is a good word, the federal government to um, encourage and, and find ways to support the development of, of advanced nuclear and SMRs. And it was because things are already being discussed and worked on across the country. Saskatchewan's commitment to uh, coal by 2030, what does that look like for them? Well, they're going to need one one and and more than one, rather, um, suite of those energy systems to be able to replace that coal. What does that look like? They're looking at that right now. Um, I mean, I personally had conversations with CAP and COSIA, and, and what are they looking at in terms of decarbonization of the oil sands? What does that look like? And nobody has all the answers yet, but what we do know is um, the data is showing that we can't get to net zero 2050 without nuclear. There is just not enough heft in the system. And as we, uh, someone earlier mentioned electrification, well, we're pushing more and more towards electrification, uh, whether that's in transportation, whether it's in homes, whether it's in industry. And so in order to meet that demand, we have to have that heft of, of generation. Mm-hmm. And the SMRs also produce thermal uh, and uh, hydrogen, as we talked about a fair bit today and the minister talked about, as well as electricity. So it is really a complement. Uh, you know, the, the, um, the evidence is there that the more installation of SMR, the more opportunity for wind and solar and biomass. So we have a long way to go to get this all sorted out. There's no question. But I think governments around the world are looking at the imperative of climate change, our commitments to Paris, our commitments to net zero 2050, and saying, what are those technologies that may not be here right now, but are in development that will be in the near to medium term? And I'm just going to give you a quick example Uh, A few weeks ago, Ontario Power Generation um, announced their collaboration with a couple of vendors on a large-scale, grid-size, small modular reactor that they anticipate will be ready in 2028. Canadian Nuclear Labs is partnering with um, another vendor, and they're doing what we call VSMRs, or very small modular reactors. It might be used for transportation or small communities or mining, as an example. I've been engaged on multiple fronts with the mining sector around what this might look like for them. And then I would say the other indication from the federal government is the uh, commitment of ICED to provide $20 million for terrestrial energy for to accelerate the development of the molten salt reactor. So there's a recognition and acknowledgement that we need us all rowing in the same direction. We need to accelerate all of these technologies and all of this innovation that Canada is is frankly, very, very good at, and um, roll them out and deploy them where they make sense, either individually or, or in, in collaboration with others. So I'm pretty excited about this announcement coming up, and uh, we'll see what happens. 
Great, great. So uh, for those in the audience, we are going to be uh, moving into questions in about uh, seven to 10 minutes or so. So uh, please start uh, firing them away and uh, I will be receiving them and, and uh, posing them to our panelists. Before doing that, though, there's a topic I absolutely want us uh, to get to, which is at Canada's energy and climate debate. Um, are we more polarized? Are we less polarized? Uh, is the polarization, is it partisan? Like, wh where are we at? And, and Kim, I actually want to go to you on this one. You mentioned Generation Energy and both of us being at, at Generation Energy. I've got some very fond memories from, uh, from that mm -hmm. symposium. Um, you know, and, and, and since that time, we've seen a number of different sort of milestones, as it were, in terms of, um, you know, divisiveness. Uh, over energy uh, issues, whether in terms of, uh, you know, particular projects or in terms of uh, carbon taxes, um, you know, we, we could all, I'm sure, come up with our, our list. What's your sense of where things are at now and kind of what trajectory we might be on? Well, I don't believe cl climate change is not a partisan issue. Uh, climate change is real. It's here. And um, while I can't say 100% of Canadians agree with it, I'm going to say the vast, vast majority do. And it's government's responsibility at all levels to figure out how we address that. And the collaboration, as someone mentioned earlier, will be key between all levels of government to make sure that happens. Are there elements in climate plans and, and energy plans that um, aren't don't sit well with some folks? Sure there are. But there's a rationale for each element. And it's incumbent, again, for all levels of government to work on finding that, uh, that work that can be done to find a way to move forward. You know, the carbon, I don't call it the carbon tax. I call it the price on pollution. And uh, it's ingrained in me. And, you know, one of the things that when that first came in and our government said there's going to be a price on carbon and, and it was going to, the proceeds of which were going to be returned to Canadians, it, it, it didn't, it kind of got lost a bit, I think. And it allowed for a conversation that was not necessarily as factual as it should have been. And I think that is um, part of the challenge with this whole energy transition now. There are people that don't understand nuclear because they're using old information or they're not interested in, in the information. There are people who are very much anti-oil and gas. They don't understand the work that's been done in that sector in reclamation and reducing GHGs, et cetera, et cetera. There are people who are against my community. I remember the wind, anti-wind folks and you know, not in my backyard. Those are all real elements we all have to deal with. They're not going away, but I think we can reduce them. In fact, I think we are reducing them. And I think that's where the all of the above pro approach comes. Um, Kirsty Gangnall from the UK was saying there was a study out and they said, when you live in a nuclear community like mine, the acceptance of nuclear is very high. But when you live in a community that doesn't have it, they don't understand it, don't know it, not so much. But she said they've done a recent study that showed when you coupled nuclear with renewables, with other forms of energy as a solution, it went from something like 40%, 45%, this is in the UK, 45% with only nuclear and up into 85 and 90% if you combined it. So I think those are the processes we have to work. 
uh, through to get where we need to be. It's not going to be easy, uh, but we all have to be, as they say, singing from the same song songbook. It's about climate change. Thanks, Kim. Teresa, I'd be really interested in your perspective on on the same question. Uh, you know, coming from industry, uh, uh, as you do, are, are things more or less divided and, and and polarized? What's what kind of a trajectory do you see the country being on? Well, certainly, we were um, uh, somewhat vilified as an industry in some uh, aspects in terms of oil sands and oil sands are bad and Canada's dirtiest oil, which in fact isn't factually correct. We're producing. Um, uh, oil sands, um, crude oil that's uh, below the national, uh, the global average uh, for greenhouse gas intensity. So, you know, it, it's what often happens is the hyperbole gets a little blown out of proportion, and it's often by people who just are not informed. They're just not. They're just don't. They don't have all the facts. And you know, I have great faith in humanity. And over time, the pendulum swings to rational thought and. And we are seeing some of that now. I mean, certainly the conversation today has been has been full of that. So I think um, you will see over time that uh, the um, fringe, ele- the people who have the, the most divisive opinions are actually on the fringe. And the majority of Canadians and the majority of the people on this call today are here in the middle and want to work together to find solutions. And that's how we succeed as a country. And there's a lot of battles to be had. We don't need to battle each other. I think we need to come together and put our smart minds together to solve these challenging, they're challenging problems, um, and and create that vision that I talked about earlier. You know, just about every significant advance in the history of humanity has been driven by new, better, and cheaper technology. So, so, but it has to be applied. It has to be applied competitively. So um, that coming together, I think more and more people are seeing that coming together as being so important. And, and our industry has made great strides. We've reduced greenhouse gas intensity by over 20% in recent years. We've got technologies that will, um, you know, we've got technology today that will reduce greenhouse gas intensity by up to 90%. So it, it's, it's, the opportunities are fantastic. And um, again, most of the people that are, are making those comments are are a little bit out on the fringe or, or don't have the most recent uh, information. Thanks, uh, thanks, Teresa. Um, Robert, I, I want to come to you on on uh, this topic. Uh, you know, you had mentioned a moment ago around uh, national vision that that maybe they're you know at a at a grand level there's agreement, but maybe when you know when it comes down to uh, a bit more of the details, we might find some differences. If if there are some tough conversations that the country needs to have, because I think we're all saying this is likely to be challenging and is going to be challenging. Uh, where would you see the key issues uh, being? Well, I think uh, this whole discussion around collaboration is incredibly important. And I think we see a lot of growing examples of collaboration. I'm just, I mean, I'm running a new association that brought together wind and solar, for example. We're working with energy storage. And why are we doing that? Because we think that together we can provide a more comprehensive solution to offer to customers. You have growing collaboration within the electricity sector because we all see a common interest in electrification. We see growing interest between the natural gas industry and the electricity sector in discussions around hydrogen. So I think all all of us believe that there is an opportunity for all of us. And all of us, I think, really just want the opportunity to be able to compete 
for that opportunity. And that really, again, comes back to letting the market work and ensuring that we have an opportunity to move forward. And I would draw the example of the electricity sector right now. I would argue that to achieve a lot of the goals we hope to achieve in the electricity sector, frankly, it's not a technology question anymore. We've got pretty much most of the technologies in place. What we need is we need market rules, we need regulatory frameworks to catch up to technology, to enable all of the technology options that are now available to participate, to compete, and to sort of work together to try and find the path forward that's going to be working. And I think the the biggest challenge, though, in terms of collaboration, I would argue, is going to be at the provincial level. And at the end of the day, our federated structure is a strength in so many ways. We have gives us an opportunity to be innovative, apply different solutions in different areas, but it does sometimes work against collaboration. And if we don't collaborate, there's no hope at all of, of kind of achieving this goal. And fundamentally, I would come back to what I said earlier. I think the key to collaboration is having a common agreement as to what you're working to achieve. If we all agree on the end result we're trying to achieve, we've got lots of smart people across the country in all these different sectors who can chart the way there. But if we don't have common agreement on that, we just end up talking past each other, which I think has been a problem historically, hopefully not in the future. Great. Thanks, Robert. So the questions are just rolling uh, in. We'll have time for a few before we have to close off here. I'm sure we'll get the hook from Alex uh, at about 2.15 or maybe even shortly before that. So um, so here's a question for the, for the group. Um, how should we be financing the energy transformation and mobilizing private capital to help with uh, needed investment? Happy to have anybody jump in on, on I'll, that. I'll, I'm happy to start. Um, there is a, there's a role for government and there is a role for private investment. And private investment needs signals from governments, all levels of government, in order to um, be able to, um, to be part of that, um, that project or that system or whatever is being created. There's, governments can't do it all, but we can't expect we can't expect industry to um, go it alone on some of these new innovations and technologies that do take major capital and some time to realize. So I think that's a signal we're getting uh, from the government with the hydrogen piece announcement today as an example. There's work to do. The government has a role. And once those signals come from government around policy, et cetera, et cetera, then the investment follows. And we know more and more investment is coming and they are, when they do come, they want to ensure that there is a recognition of climate change within that, um, within the government's policy and within the company's policy. That's how we'll attract investment. Mm. Uh, other comments on, on this? Uh, Teresa, I think I saw you wanting to jump in. Sure, yeah, I might just build on Kim's comments um, that were very good. Um, you know, the, the regulatory framework and certainty and clarity is very important. I think, too, when, when we're talking about attracting investment, it has to be a competitive jurisdiction. So what do we mean when we say competitive? Um, and, and I mentioned that earlier. It You know, um, the tax regime needs to be competitive. Um, you know, certainly in, in parts of the, the large parts of the U.S. And, and even in Norway and other places, they have, uh, you know, capital cost allowance that recognizes these investments and provides, you know, um, uh, very uh, accelerated, uh, attractive um, uh, structures to invest. 
um, they've got uh, a timeline that allows them to build. So, you know, regulatory timeline that it doesn't go on and on forever, but has some sort of uh, boundaries to, to give them a sense that we're not investing with the hope of being able to build, but actually seeing a pathway to, to doing that build. So those are just some of the important competitiveness elements that, uh, that, uh, that attract capital. And, and if those don't exist, it's very easy to move money and, and money goes elsewhere. What about, um, you know, in the Canadian context, uh, we haven't talked about uh, UNDRIP uh, and uh, the tabling of UNDRIP legislation and, of course, its, its, uh, its existence in, in British Columbia. Where where does, you know, reconciliation with Indigenous communities and uh, fit in? I don't know, Scott, is that something that you could uh, speak to? I think, you know, it's I think the energy transformation is an opportunity to engage those stakeholders. I think that, you know, Obviously, reconciliation can help with energy by providing them the energy they need and they want, and they can develop, uh, you know, their, their own economies as as they grow forward. So I think, you know, as Teresa mentioned, in order to grow the world's economy, energy is sort of a, a vital component to that, and it brings people, you know, up into the middle class and gives nations wealth. So I think anything that we can do, you know, whether it be a small modular nuclear reactor that we can get into a remote community to help, whether we can find a way to, you know, leverage a, a renewable asset in those communities or, you know, transporting hydrogen in some way. I think those are opportunities for involvement, dialogue, and, and reconciliation and economic development if that's what they choose. So I think it's, it's an opportunity. It takes, you know, people, as I think Robert said, we need to talk and not talk past each other. And we need to find ways to work together and, and collaborate. We've got another question here that I think uh, could enable each of you to weigh in, but from a different uh, perspective and might actually help us to see in action what uh, what a and all of the above collaborative approach looks like. So the question reads, the demand for electricity will grow rapidly. Electricity must be dispatched and large quantities cannot be stored. What work must be done to provide Canada with a spectrum of energy transportation and large-scale storage systems for supplying domestic and export markets? Uh, maybe I'll start with you on that one, uh, Robert, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that the uh, I think this is an example of where you have a tremendous wealth of options, actually, to look at. So when we look at the question of energy storage, which comes forward because of the variable nature of generation like wind and solar and how we're going to manage that going forward, Canada starts off blessed with tremendous amount of reservoir hydro, which can provide a tremendous amount of energy storage services. Uh, we look at energy storage technologies, and there's a whole range of them. We hear about batteries the most, but there are other ones that are also moving forward, long duration, short duration, that all have a role. Hydrogen has a potential role in energy storage. Demand-side management has a potential role in managing the variability of, of renewable generation. There are, there are a suite of options. And again, the challenge is, can we set up frameworks that allow all of them to compete? Because at the end of the day, I think it will be a variety of solutions come forward that will be appropriate to different areas. But in all areas, we want those solutions to be the most cost-competitive ones. We're going to see a significant expansion of electricity production. We want it to be as affordable as possible. And enabling the market to make those choices would be tremendously helpful. I saw a lot of nodding heads from the other panelists during that. Uh, mm -hmm. Thoughts from, from others? 
Yeah, sure, I can go. I mean, uh, look, you know, I think our Markham facility actually has a contract with the the, the ISO in, in Ontario mm -hmm. to provide grid stability support services, and a byproduct of that is hydrogen. So it's it's an opportunity to store hydrogen, which then can be run through a fuel cell if required and back into the grid. But it's using, a, you know, a, a something that's required in order for the electricity system to, you know, work properly and it, it's got a byproduct of hydrogen so it's, it's a great opportunity of the linking of those two systems and then you could use that hydrogen obviously to decarbonize other other uh, natural natural gas or other energy sources as required so i think you know there, there's there's lots of thinking out there there's lots of opportunities and and it's just a matter of finding them and, and matching the uh, the buyer and the seller so to speak great kim or, or Teresa, thoughts on that one uh, I'll just, you know, in terms of the storage piece, um, we need storage to um, to bring on more and more renewables. We need baseload. Uh, we need a number of things. And and again, going back to my comment about there'll be different in different requirements in different places. You know, just not too far from me, we have a fairly large pump storage facility in an old mine. People are, there have thing, There are things going on that the average person doesn't know about. And, and not just the average person, but lots of folks in the field don't know about as well. And that's where those conversations have to come. I'll just go back to CCUS uh, was mentioned earlier. CCUS a few years ago uh, with the Boundary Dam in Saskatchewan, there was a thinking around it's too expensive, it can't happen, et cetera, et cetera. Fast forward to three years later. Um, the U.S. Is, has really taken this on. Canada has um, as well. And we're finding that the costs are coming down, just like wind and solar. Think of wind and solar 20 years ago and the costs that were attached to that and where it is now. It's going to be like that with any new technology. And we have to recognize that there is a efficiency in collaboration and there's an efficiency in making sure that we are um, you know, the question about uh, reconciliation. Hmm. It, you're right, Teresa, it's not efficient if you don't have the regulatory system, if you don't have the certainty to be able to, things hang on and ha hang on. I'm, I'm very well aware of that. The Jim Carr used to say, you can't build anything until you build a relationship. And I think that's what the sectors have been doing. They have been building relationship with Indigenous peoples across the country and finding a way to um, work together to make sure that that everyone is um, on the same page and that everyone has the opportunity to benefit and not just from you know benefit agreements that involve money but also from their own economic development perspective and, and what their needs are so I think we have we're sort of on the cusp I think of a lot of things and and I'm pretty impressed with the work that's been done over the past few years um, by industry particularly about moving us forward. Great. So we have time uh, for, for one more quick question. This one actually deals with geopolitics. I've sort of been thinking about it as I've been listening to uh, the, your responses to the last one. Uh, so the question is, what will be the geopolitical implications for Canada of clean energy transition over the next 10 years? Hmm. Wow. That's, well, that's that's I, could, I could offer, and, and I've already said it, but I could, could offer again, um, you know, Canada's got a strong place in the world today and uh, and can be even stronger tomorrow um, if we do all the things we talked about. So 
from a geopolitical standpoint, I think Canada can play a huge role in um, in the energy space from uh, you know replacing replacing some forms of energy that don't have the the strong ESG characteristics that Canadian energy does. So we can replace Saudi Arabia crude oil. We can replace Russia crude oil. We can replace some of the other um, uh, uh, you know uh, products on the market today. So so we've got we've got a role to play, and it, in a way, it's incumbent upon us because when we do that, and we do that with lower greenhouse gas intensity, when we do that with uh, better human rights uh, relations with our communities, then um, we're bringing, we're lifting the world up. We're bringing the world to a better place. And how exciting could that be? Well, what a great, uh, what a great place to, to end on. I, I see Alex is giving us the virtual hook. So <laughs> allow me to uh, close off this session to thank all of our panelists, what a terrific uh, discussion. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives. Alex, over to you. Thank, thank you, you very job, much, Monica. Monica. Yeah, Monica, that I was just about to say, thank you very much. You made, uh, you made my job and our job here very easy dealing with, uh, I think, a really uh, fascinating and timely and diverse uh, set of uh, panelists and issues. So really appreciate the, the time. Uh, Robert, Kim, Teresa, Scott, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we, we really appreciate, uh, you know, having, a, a, such a great panel, um, quickly following on a conversation with the minister that literally was breaking news, which is great. Um, Lots more for for us to do. I mean, if you if you take one look at the the Q and A function here, this is probably the most active Q and A that we have had in many of the sessions that we've done here. Teresa, there's some specific questions for you that I'm going to send you by email, and maybe we can do another event on it. Same for you, Scott. Same for you, Robert. Same for you, Kim. Um, so thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Uh, Monica, thank you very much for, for your time. Uh, if you want to listen to this again, uh, which I certainly do, you can do that on the 2020 Network on your favorite podcast app. Um, this may be it for us for, for 2020 uh, from an event perspective. We may do something else between now and the end of the year, but I'm not going to promise anything. Um, but if you have been with us throughout this series. I want to really thank you for, for taking the time to engage. Uh, our audience has actually uh, grown over the course of these past few months. And um, I think it just shows that the market for ideas is open and we really appreciate everyone on this panel helping to contribute to that. So uh, thank you very much. We appreciate your time and uh, hope you have a, a safe and happy holiday season. <laughs>